The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. The Lord has provided us a tremendous grace recovery principle in 1 John 1, 9 that no matter how we fail, no matter how heinous the sin, no matter how shocking it might be, all we have to do is go to the Lord and admit or acknowledge that sin to Him. He instantly forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness because, of course, all sin has been paid for by Christ on the cross already. So let's open with a few moments of silent prayer. Father, we do thank You so much that we can come together this morning to worship You through studying Your Word, that, that our thinking might be transformed and, and renewed by the truth of Your Word. Scripture says that we are sanctified by truth, and it is Your Word that is truth. The power is not some mystical force, but the power of absolute truth, that we might know how things are as You have created them, and not as they are because we think they are that way. So, Father, we pray that we might have an attitude of submission to your authority as expressed in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue our study of the Old Testament, orienting to the Old Testament. How do we look at the Old Testament? Now, we're nearing the end of this study, and we'll probably wrap it up in the next week or two. So, we need to make sure we take the time to sort of go back and see why we are doing this and what its significance is for us. You know, one of there's two or three questions people ask every now and then, and they're they're sort of hot button for me. You want to really see me react? You just say make one of these two or three statements, and and you're in trouble. One is, Pastor, I think these things need to be a little more relevant to us. You know, that's just too abstract. Well, see the see this is the self-absorption of our age, where we look at things that are in detail, as detailed as good Bible study usually is. And the reaction is, and from many people, is, well, I don't want to learn all about that or about this detail or that doctrine. I just need something I can take home and use today. Let's make sure that every message is relevant. Well, I've got a surprise for you. Every message is relevant. You may not see its relevance today or tomorrow or next month or in a couple of years, but... but Every point of doctrine fits into a, a pattern, an overall structure that, that orients us to reality and orients us, orients us to life. 
And the problem is that the problem that most people have today is we want the Bible to be relevant to us, and that's a very man-centered approach. See, the problem is not that the Bible's not relevant to us. The problem is we're not relevant to the Bible. Not that the Bible has to be brought down to us, but we have to change to orient to the Scriptures. And uh, the other hot-button issue, someone said this to me this last week, and I've just kind of been vibrating over it all week. There was um, somebody made the comment about a church that, that, well, they were looking for a pastor, and they said, well, we want to have a balanced church. I just kind of scratched my head and said, balance? What do you want to balance, truth and error? You know, how in the world do you... See, people think that sounds good. We want to balance this and we want to balance that. The Bible never approaches the truth from the perspective of balance. If you're doing the truth and applying the Word consistently across the board, you're going to have a healthy church and a healthy life and advance spiritually. But this idea of balance, usually it's because they're incorporating a lot of human viewpoint in their, in their system somewhere and they just want balance. So... Anyway, don't ever say those things to me. They, they really get me going. Scripture is always relevant. Everything in the Old Testament, the more I get into the Old Testament at times, and we're, I think during, by the time we get to the end of this year, we're going to be immersed in the Old Testament even more. We'll be in Judges within the next month, and before the end of the year, we'll be in Daniel. So you can take good notes this morning, and that will prepare you for what's coming up in the fall. But the Scripture says in the New Testament, all Scripture is breathed by God. First, Second Timothy, or First Timothy 3.16, or Second Timothy 3.16-17. All Scripture is God-breathed. Now, the point of that, when Paul says all Scripture, he is not talking about the New Testament canon, as we have seen. When he writes that to Timothy, only a few books in the New Testament have been written. Maybe 50% of the New Testament canon has been written. It certainly hasn't circulated very widely, so the majority of believers in roughly 60 A.D. did not have a New Testament canon in front of them that they could consult in order to understand how to live the Christian life. What they had was the Old Testament. So the primary point of reference in that statement, all scriptures God breathed, is that Paul is thinking in terms of the Old Testament, especially in the context of that particular comment in Second Timothy 3. Secondly, in First Timothy 10, 1 through 3, Paul makes the comment referring to all the events in the history of Israel that these things happened as an example for us. They are there to teach us many different principles. Now, we may, we may have a spiritual life that is based on the unique filling in baptism, indwelling, and filling of God the Holy Spirit today, but many of the principles carry over from the Old Testament and are illustrated in the real-life situations of the heroes of the Old Testament as we see both their successes and their failures. So we have to look at the Old Testament as something that is very important for us to understand and to comprehend, and there are many things there that God wants us to pay attention to. As we started, we saw, as our first point back in Genesis 1, that the purpose of man was to be the vicegerent of God over the earth. Now, this word vicegerent may be one that is unusual to you, so let me define it for you. Sometimes, I think once or twice, I've used the word vice-regent. Vice-regent is not the correct word. You look up the dictionary, the definition of vice-regent is someone who acts as a regent's deputy. Now, what is a regent? 
A regent is someone who rules during the minority, the absence, or the disability of a monarch, one acting as a ruler or governor. And in some sense, that might apply, but the term vicegerent is more precise. It refers to a person appointed by a ruler or head of state to act as an administrative deputy. And that's exactly how God created Adam in the garden. He has appointed the ruler, the administrator of planet Earth, to rule it in God's stead. We looked at the passage in Genesis 1, 26-27, where God establishes the original creation covenant, sometimes referred to as the Edenic covenant, with Adam, where he says, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. And we saw that those words image and likeness don't refer simply to the immaterial makeup of man, but of course they do, but they also refer to its purpose and function. God created man in his image to function as his image, as his representative on the earth. We looked at that and then we saw in our development of the Old Testament that man failed, the human race failed, they failed at the fall, they failed again in the antediluvian civilization, and there was the judgment of the worldwide flood. And then after the flood, they failed again to disperse, fill, and multiply the earth and carry out the terms of the Noahic covenant. And they were judged at the Tower of Babel. In light of the failure of the human race and the Gentiles as a whole, God chose one man, Avram, or Abram, to, so that through him he would work out his divine purposes and plan to bring about the, uh, the reinstitution of the original Edenic state. See, once Adam fell, everything that comes after that is a process whereby God is going to redeem mankind in order to restore him to the position of ruling and reigning over the planet. That is ultimately fulfilled in the person of the God-man, Jesus Christ. This is why the second person of the Trinity takes on flesh not only to redeem man, but to redeem him for the purpose of ultimate restoration of all things. And that takes place in the millennial kingdom. And then we go on into the new heavens and the new earth. So in the initial stage of this plan of restoration, God is going to work through one man and his descendants, Israel. And Israel is to be the missionary agent. But Israel fails and fails miserably. They are brought out. We have seen that they are brought out of of Egypt, and God says that He has adopted Israel as His firstborn, and they are given the responsibility to be a blessing to the Gentiles, and that's because of their walk with the Lord. And as they do that, they will carry out the evangelism and witness to the Lord. We have seen their failure time and time again during the period of the judges, during the period of the divided monarchy. We have seen that the northern kingdom was taken out under divine discipline the ten tribes in the north taken out under divine discipline in 722 B.C. through the use of the uh, Assyrian Empire. And we have seen that in the southern kingdom there is further and continued failure. As we go through that, we see the breakdown like this chronologically. In 586 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah goes out under divine discipline when they are finally conquered by the Babylonians. Preceding that, you have the reign of the last four kings of Judah, Josiah the good king from 640 to 609 B.C. Then there is the short reign of a 
just a couple of months of Jehoahaz, who is an evil king. He reigns briefly in 609 B.C. He is succeeded by Jehoiakim, who reigns from 609 to 597 B.C. when he is finally taken off into captivity and presumably killed by Nebuchadnezzar. And he is replaced on the throne by Jehoiakim, who lasts for all of three months before he tries to set up an alliance with the Egyptians. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't look kindly upon that, so he rips him off the throne and blinds him and hauls him off into captivity. And he remains in captivity for 37 years until he is finally released by Nebuchadnezzar's successor, Evil Merodach. So Jehoiakim is on the throne for a brief three months, and then he is followed by the last king in the south, Zedekiah, who is on the throne from that should be 607 to 586 B.C. And then in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar has his third assault on Judah, wipes them out, invades uh, the land, conquers Jerusalem, destroys the temple, deports the upper classes and middle classes from Judah, and the Davidic monarchy is left in ruins. The land is conquered. The people are taken from the land and they are left in a depressed and discouraged state. You can imagine that the question on their mind at this time is, what's happened to God? Is He, is he not on the throne anymore? Is He somehow taking a nap or just not paying attention? What about all of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What about the promises in the uh, real estate covenant to uh, Moses that we would have this land in perpetuity forever and ever? What about the promises to David that there would be a seed of David on the throne forever and ever? Uh, what about our position and our future and all the glorious things that God has promised? Have we been misled or deceived? Is God just not powerful? Are the gods of Babylon more powerful than Yahweh? What are we to do? Now, the people were not left without a witness. At the time of the Babylonian captivity, in fact, there were there were three Jewish communities that survived. And to understand that is to understand some stuff that prepares you for the New Testament period. There is a group that leaves Egypt, and, I mean leaves Israel and goes down to Egypt. And the prophet who goes with them is Jeremiah. And there is a tremendous colony of Jews that survives for the next several centuries into the church, into the first century period in Egypt. Then there is another small group, mostly lower class peasants who have no skills, no training, who are left in the land and they have no no hope of success or doing anything. There are just a few that are left. And then there are the middle classes and upper class artisans, craftsmen, scholars. The aristocracy has all been hauled off into captivity in Babylon. So those are the three groups. You have a, uh, a community in, in, left in Judah that's very small. You have a community in Egypt and a community in Babylon. And those are the, those are the three groups. At the end of the 70 years of Babylonian captivity, they do return to the land, but they don't know that. In, in 586 BC, as they're being hauled off in chains to Babylon, it seems that everything they have hoped for, everything they have desired, everything they have relied upon in terms of God's Word has been, has been lost. But they do have a document in their hands, and that is the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah wrote some 150 years before this, 
but Isaiah had prophesied this very captivity. And he prophesies their attitude in verse 27 of Isaiah 40. Isaiah says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Notice the despair that's there. They're saying, God, how can you be just and let this happen? These are evil, wicked people. That's the same thing that Habakkuk uh, is the theme of Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets, and he starts off his prophecy, Lord, how long will you let this nation come under the control of these false teachers? And the Lord answers uh, Habakkuk, and he says, well, I have discipline on the way. It's on the horizon. It's the Chaldeans. Wait a minute, Lord. How can you bring those evil people on us? And that's the whole purpose of Habakkuk, to show that God can use whoever God wants to. He is the sovereign Lord of history, and He can use whoever He wants to to discipline His people because they have been in failure. And so now, in verse 27, there is the picture of the Jews in captivity whining and crying about their captivity, that somehow God is not paying attention to their plight, that they have been, uh, they're going through this misery and this suffering, and God's justice has somehow escaped them. And this is the solution that Isaiah has for them. And whenever we get in this situation, we feel like somehow God is not paying attention to us, that He's concerned with somebody else and somehow forgot about us. Uh, This is the passage we should go to. Verse 28, Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. He hasn't turned His back on you. He hasn't fallen asleep. He's not a paying attention to someone else and temporarily forgot about you. He is neither weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He's omniscient. He has always known all the knowable. and He knows every single uh, problem, every adversity, every difficulty in our lives. And He is in control of the situation. Verse 29, He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, He increases power. Reminds us of the passage in 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul has the thorn in the flesh uh, adversity and God says to him, My grace is sufficient for you. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might. He increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not grow weary. I just like the poetry and the imagery of the King James much better than the this sort of pusillanimous translation of the, King, of the New American Standard. They will run and not grow weary, just doesn't have the majesty of they will, uh, I mean, they will run and not get tired, doesn't have the majesty of they will run and not grow weary, they will walk and not faint. The problem with the Jews is that they are now weary and tired and discouraged and depressed, and they look at their circumstances and they see the tremendous power of the Babylonian Empire, and they see its wealth and its majesty, and it's spread out over most of the known world, and they see the rise of the Persian Empire as well during this period as the media Persian Empire comes on the scene and conquers and defeats the Babylonians. And they ask the question, how in the world are we ever going to get home? How can God conquer the might of man? It just seems like man's power and our circumstances are just overwhelming. There's no way that we will ever get back into the land, that the Davidic promise is defeated, the Davidic seed has disappeared, and God has abandoned and forsaken us. But they 
can turn in the scroll of Isaiah to Isaiah 48.20, where Isaiah prophesies that there is a return from Babylon. He says, Go forth from Babylon, flee the Chaldeans, declare with the sound of joyful shouting, proclaim this, send it out to the end of the earth, say, The Lord has redeemed His servant Jacob. So, they have the scroll of Isaiah in their hands. They know that there is a future and they can take comfort from the Word of God to handle their adversity. Now, in order to understand the background of what takes place during the exile, and two major books deal with the exile, they are Daniel and Ezekiel, and I'm primarily going to look at Daniel for us this morning. Uh, Daniel deals with the question, is God still sovereign over the world? Is God still sovereign over human kingdoms? Or have we somehow lost and God has been defeated? I have to understand something about what has taken place, that, that this discipline is related to the five cycles of discipline outlined in Deuteronomy 24. And because Israel has been involved in idolatry, gross idolatry, God has removed them from the land as He promised. We saw that under Manasseh, Manasseh was the father of Josiah, the good king. Our chart earlier started with with um, with uh, uh, Josiah, but his father Manasseh was the most evil king of all the kings of Israel and Judah. He led them back into rank paganism, such that the uh, horrible deeds and the perversions of the Canaanites at the time of Moses were almost nothing compared to the perversions under Manasseh. There was a restoration of child sacrifice. There was the uh, full-blown use or restoration of fertility worship in the phallic cult in Israel. And there was an outbreak and increase, as there always is in times of perversion of homosexuality, because that is part of the way God judges civilizations, is to restrain or to, uh, to pull back the restraint on evil and to turn man over to the depravity of his heart. And that's outlined in Romans chapter 1. So God is going to punish and discipline Judah to teach them a lesson that he indeed is God. So he raises up a new empire in the east of Babylon. The first major ruler of Babylon was Nabopolassar, who unified the empire. And he died in 605 B.C. And we'll put a little timeline up here on the overhead. Here's 600. In 605 or 604, Nabopolassar dies. In 605, his son Nebuchadnezzar, it's really Nebuchadrezzar in the, in the uh, Chaldean, but when it comes over into Hebrew, they replace the R with an N, so it becomes Nebuchadnezzar. But in the original, it's Nebuchadrezzar. And he is a he is the commander of the armies, and he comes down out of out of Babylon and attacks and has a major battle with the Egyptians north of Israel and Syria at a place called Carchemish. And in 605, one of the most significant battles in the ancient world takes place, and Nebuchadnezzar defeats Pharaoh Necho of Egypt at Carchemish, and that opens the door once the Egyptian army is out of the way for, for Nebuchadnezzar to invade down into uh, Syria and along the Mediterranean as he advances towards Egypt. And it is at that time that he first invades Judah and leads the initial group of captives to Babylon. And it is in that group of captives, of young 
aristocrats in 605 that Daniel goes back, Daniel and his friend Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go back to Babylon. They had, 605 is the first attack and defeat of Judah, and it is just the next year in 604 that Nabopolassar dies and Nebuchadnezzar has to make a fast move to get back to Babylon in order to secure his succession and to secure the throne. And it is at roughly that time that Daniel and these other young men are taken back to uh, Babylon in order to be trained to serve the, um, the king Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you were among that group of captives that, that were taken to Babylon, as you walked into Babylon, as you came up from the south on the Euphrates River, what you would see is a massive city. The walls of Babylon were 85 feet high. Every 65 feet along that wall, there was a massive tower that helped support the, the wall. The circumference of the wall was 11 miles. So it's 11 miles across for the city of Babylon. And the wall itself is 65 feet wide. Now, I don't know how long this building is from one end to the other, but I think it's not... Um, it's less than 65 feet. So it's 65 feet, which means that four chariots can ride abreast along the, 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 the parapet all the way around. And the reason they build it that way, it's roughly a highway up there. They have an interstate on top of the wall so that they can move their troops from one point to another very rapidly in the defense of the city. Around the base of the wall is a moat that is fed by the Euphrates. The Euphrates River comes into Babylon on one side, there is a gate there, and it flows through the city and goes out the other side, and then they have a couple of canals that run off of that to establish a moat around the outside of the wall. The gates were designed to be shut during times of war so that they could close up the city completely and be protected, so it was a tremendous defensive posture. There are seven gates in the city. If you come down from the north, there are two gates, the gate of Ishtar and the moon god Sin. On the west, there's the gate of Marduk and the gate of Ninurtah, who was the goddess of hunting and warfare. On the south, there are the gates of Raman, Enlil, Shamash, and then Adad, the gate of Adad on the east. Now, all of these are the names of the gods, the pantheon of the Babylonian gods. Now, if you are a, a Jew, as Daniel and the others are, and you are devoted to the Word of God and against idolatry, what is hitting you as you're coming into this city is this overwhelming presence of paganism. As you came in the gate, let's say it's coming in from the, uh, from the south, as you entered in on the uh, let's say the gate of Enlil, you would come in and you would go down the great broad boulevard that Nebuchadnezzar constructed, which was the boulevard of Marduk. This boulevard was about 65 feet wide so that you could have the same number of chariots, four chariots going abreast. And it was built with, with uh, a variety of blue enamel bricks and on every brick was stamped the name of the god Marduk. So you are, once again, overwhelmed with the presence of idolatry. This 65-foot boulevard extends all the way through the city, and on each side of the boulevard there is a walkway of orange brick 
And then there are walls on the side of that that go up 85 feet. Nothing in the city is higher than 85 feet except for the ziggurat, the big tower to the heavens where God comes down to meet man in the, sit, in the center of the city. First building you would see would be the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. The walls were 135 feet thick. It was an impregnable fortress inside of an impregnable fortress. It was 85 feet high. And his name, the name of Nebuchadnezzar, is stamped on every brick for the first 24 feet into the wall. The one thing that stands out is his power and his presence. Throughout the palace and throughout the city, all along the boulevard, are temples to all of the gods and goddesses, to Marduk, Nebo, Zarphanat, Shamash, Sin, Raman, and all of the other gods in the pantheon. At the center of the city, there is a ziggurat that is a stair-step pyramid that goes up 300 feet and towers over the city. It is made of uh, each step is 300 feet square at the base, and then it begins to stair-step up. Each step is a different color. The first is white, then black, then yellow, then silver, and then gold. And it is up those stairs that the priests and priestesses of their pantheon worship and sacrifice at the top. So if you are a Jew coming into Babylon, you are overwhelmed with the paganism, with the idolatry, and that everything that is going on in this culture just drips with their pagan religion. The one thing that keeps them together is the prophecies of Jeremiah, the prophecies of Ezekiel, and the prophecies of Isaiah. Now, in the last part of Isaiah, from Isaiah 40 to 66, in these 27 chapters, there is tremendous comfort for them. Now, if we look at Isaiah, just briefly to summarize this, is the book that's in their hand that gives them comfort. There are three divisions at the end of Isaiah. In chapters 40 through 48, there is the promise of Deliverance. There is the promise that there will be everlasting punishment and judgment for the wicked and that God will eventually give His victory. In the midst of this, there is the Cyrus Oracle. Two hundred years prior to His coming, Cyrus unites the Media Persian Empire in roughly 540 B.C. And in Isaiah 44.28, we have the specific promise. It is I who says of Cyrus... Notice this is 200 years earlier. He is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. It is Cyrus who when the Media Persian Empire conquers the Babylonian Empire, that he uh, restores Israel to their land. He passes a decree and sends them back home. She will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Isaiah 44:28. Cyrus was also known as Darius the Mede in Daniel Daniel chapter 6. So in Isaiah 40 to 48, there is the promise of God's coming deliverance and judgment upon the wicked. Then in chapters 49 to 57, Isaiah begins to look down the corridor of time to how God will deliver them through the Messiah. And it is during, in this section that we have the great themes of the suffering servant and especially the key chapters 52 and 53, which focus on the coming of the Messiah, 
who will die as a substitute for the sins of the world and for Israel and provide redemption. And then in chapters 58 through 66, the theme focuses on not only their future deliverance, but also the ultimate victory of God over all the kingdoms of man and the establishment of the messianic kingdom. So with this in their hand, they have a sense of what the future holds, that despite their despair, despite the suffering, despite everything that they have lost, God is still in control of history. Now that is a prophecy that's 200 years old, but God is not silent during this period. Not only does He continue to reveal Himself through Ezekiel, and in Ezekiel you have the great promise of the future millennial temple, which is not to be confused with the old temple, the future temple, and we'll look at this a little more next time. The future temple of Ezekiel is one mile square, and there will be a restoration of sacrifice. In fact, uh, this causes a great deal of consternation among people. If you look at Ezekiel, you look at the prophecy, it's clear that he is articulating a sacrificial system in the temple. And people say, well, wait a minute, Christ has come, he's paid the price for his sins, why would there be a reinstitution of the sacrifices? That can't be right, this must be allegory. So immediately we start trying to spiritualize the prophecy. This has always been a problem in the... In the uh, early Middle Ages, there was a rabbi who locked himself up in a room for several months so he could try to reconcile Ezekiel with the Mosaic Law because they wanted to include. They thought that Ezekiel should be included in the canon, but they couldn't figure out why there were so many discrepancies between his description of the sacrificial system and the Levitical description of the sacrificial system. So he finally developed an extreme mystical. Uh, allegorical interpretation to try to reconcile everything, and they included Ezekiel in the canon. But the point is that it's a different, they recognize the fact that it was a different sacrificial system. There are many sacrifices that aren't mentioned, there are many offerings that aren't mentioned, and the purpose is that just as the church in the church age has a memorial supper where we look back and we remember what Christ did on the cross, Israel in the millennial kingdom will have memorial sacrifices that look back on what Christ did on the cross. And there, so there is a restoration of the priesthood in the millennial kingdom and a restoration of the temple and a restoration of temple sacrifices. And the temple is one mile square. It's, it's an enormous edifice that is constructed in the center of Israel and in the middle of that temple is where the Shekinah glory will reside in the... Uh, in the Messianic Kingdom. But in Daniel, the focus is on God's sovereignty over the nations. And Daniel is written specifically to show to the Jews that God is sovereign and that He is in control despite the overwhelming power of the present human, human kingdoms. Isaiah ends with the statement, in fact, each of these sections that I outlined, 40 to 48, 49 to 57 and 58 to 66. If you notice, those are those are uh, seven chapters or eight, eight, cha- eight not, excuse me, nine chapters, 27 chapters in all, nine three sections of nine chapters each, and each one ends with the refrain: "There is no peace for the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked." And then the final verse of Isaiah is: "Then they shall go forth and look on the corpses of the men." who have transgressed against me. For their worms shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, 
and they shall be an abhorrence to all mankind. And this is a description of eternal judgment in the lake of fire. So there is assurance that God is still on the throne and His justice will eventually win out. Now, when we come to Daniel, there's a number of things that I want to discuss about Daniel. And one of the issues revolves around the date of Daniel. The reason we focus on Daniel in this way is because in, in Daniel has some of the most detailed predictive prophecies in the Old Testament. And because of that, Daniel is one of the books in the Old Testament that is most attacked by the liberals. Now, what, I, what do I, when I, I've used the term liberal every now and then, and we're so used to thinking politically that, that I don't want you to be confused. When I talk about liberals, I'm not talking about political liberals. I'm talking about religious liberals. And religious liberalism came in in the 19th century as a result of the excessive dependence on rationalism in the late 18th, uh, late 18th century and early 19th century. And at the very core of religious liberalism is the assumption that God really doesn't act in human history. That, that God has not revealed Himself in history. There's no such thing as real supernaturalism in history. So that's their assumption. They have an anti-supernatural assumption and they're basing everything on human reason. They've never seen the Red Sea part. They've never seen a leper healed. They've never seen an ear put back on someone that had just been cut off. So obviously these things are just mythological uh, inventions in order to somehow give credence to religious beliefs. That's their assumption. And on the basis of that assumption, they begin to attack the veracity of the Scriptures. And one of the favorite places to start is Daniel. Now, if you can handle the attacks on Daniel, you can handle the attacks on anything else in the Scriptures. And they would basically come against Daniel on, on three issues. The, uh, uh, on four issues. The first is the date of Daniel. The second is the language of the book. They would say that, that it can't really be sixth century language. There's, there's some words in Daniel that come from much later, so, so this can't be a book that was written as it purports to have been written between 536 B.C. and uh, 600 B.C. They would also say, the liberals say, there are a number of historical blunders or mistakes in, the, in, in Daniel. And then they late date Daniel. What they do is it can't be prophecy. It, it must be history. They, they suppose that the person who wrote Daniel is really sort of a what they call a pious forger. I mean, he's, he's a Jew and he's devoted to Judaism and he wants to give tremendous credence to Judaism. So somewhere around 165 B.C., during the time of the Maccabean Empire, this guy writes a, a Daniel. He already knows what's happened. It's really history. It's not prophecy. It wasn't written before the events. It was written after the events. Now, what we know for sure is that Daniel certainly was a historic person who went into captivity in Babylon in 605 B.C. as a young man, probably 14, 15, 16 years of age at that time. And he lives another 70 plus years and eventually dies approximately 530 B.C. So he spends 75 years in captivity plus 15 as he was close to 90 years of age when he finally went to be with the Lord. The book covers a tremendous amount of history in the first section, but it also covers uh, prophecy. Now, when we come to this first issue, why is the date of Daniel important? The issue is, was it written in 586 to 539 B.C. or 165 B.C.? Now, 
Now, somebody might say, well, well, so what? Why is that really, really significant? And I'll tell you why it is significant. First of all, the sovereignty of God is at stake. The sovereignty of God is at stake. When we look at Daniel, we see that Daniel is a book that portrays God as a God who is in control of history. And because he is in control of history, the past, the present, and the future, he can accurately predict the future. You can't accurately predict what you can't control. So we see that, that the sovereignty of God is at stake and that just as Jesus Christ controls history, He is the one who is able to prophesy exactly what will come about. Now, if this book is not prophecy but history, then we can't really be sure that God's in control. He may be in control, but He may not be in control. and He may not be a very powerful God. So, the date of Daniel is important because it relates to the sovereignty of God. Secondly, it relates to the nature of the Bible. The nature of the Bible. And it comes under attack here because if the Bible gives real prophecy as we believe, then we can be sure that it comes from God. If there is real predictive prophecy two or three hundred years in advance, then we can, and given in detail, then we can be sure that God is in control. On the other hand, if it's simply history, and not only history, but one that has mistakes in it, then we can't really trust the Bible. You see, everything in the Bible, all the great doctrines from redemption to the spiritual life are all based on historical events. That's why when you come to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Christ did not physically, bodily come out of the grave in the resurrection, then we are the most deceived and most to be pitied of all people because then Christianity is false. Christianity is based on history, on the fact that at a certain date, at a certain time, the tomb was empty and Jesus Christ rose from the dead as a historical event. Not just some fuzzy idea that Jesus is alive in our hearts and minds and this is some great idea that goes on forever and ever. There has to be historical reality or it's meaningless. And that's why when you hear people say that they believe that the Bible is accurate in all matters of faith and practice, that it's not what they said that's wrong, it's what they haven't said. This was the great debate that came along back in the in the uh, in the in the 70s when the Southern Baptist denomination was having a tremendous conflagration over the inerrancy of Scripture, and also the I think it was the Missouri Synod and the Lutheran Church was also fighting the issue of inerrancy. And what you would find in many in some seminaries and some churches is you'll find that in their doctrinal statement that we believe the Bible is the Word of God and, and authoritative in all matters of faith and practice. And boy, doesn't that just sound good! It's not what's there. It's what's not there. Always think about what's not said. If the Bible is not true in every detail of history, then it's not true at all. And the doctrine that's based on that is irrelevant. So, the nature of the Bible is under attack. And then finally, the person of Jesus Christ is challenged. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus assumes the validity of the traditional viewpoint that Daniel lived and wrote in the 5th century or 6th century B.C. And if Jesus is wrong about Daniel, then Jesus is fallible. And if Jesus is fallible, then He's not impeccable. And if He's not impeccable, He's not the God-man and He can't die on the cross for our sins. So if Daniel wasn't written when Daniel claims to be, then Jesus made mistakes and we have no salvation. So this is a crucial issue. So the first thing we'll look at in our 
discussion is the date of the earliest manuscript of Daniel. At Qumran at the Dead Sea, 17 different manuscripts of Daniel were discovered. We know there's 17 different manuscripts because the handwriting is different in each one of these, indicating 17 different scribes. And one of the more significant fragments covers the section in chapter in the end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2 where the language shifts from Hebrew to Aramaic. And by looking at that, what we can see is that based on the paleography, in other words, based on how, how the letters were written, how they were formed, you can, you can look at that. Go back and look at how your parents made their R's in cursive writing and how you were taught. And you'll see a difference because from decade to decade, we're taught how to make certain letters a little differently. And so you can look at how people write and you can date based on the paleography. So we can date this early manuscript that we have from the Dead Sea Scrolls somewhere between 125 B.C. and 200 B.C. Now, this is not a substantive argument in the sense to disprove what the critics say because the liberals want to date Daniel at 165. But of course, if this were written at 200 at one end, that does away with the 165 argument. And if it's written in 125, of course, that would make 165 possible. But the point I want to make is that, that the liberal is inconsistent at this point. Because the liberal has manuscripts from Chronicles, Psalms, and uh, Ecclesiastes that are all dated in this 150 to 170 B.C. period. And the older liberal view was that that's when they were originally written. But once they discovered at the Dead Sea that they had documents, manuscripts with that date on them, they had to say that 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 couldn't be the original, so those manuscripts had to be at least 100 years older. But when it comes to Daniel, they wanted... In fact, one archaeologist tried to, tried to argue that this fragment from the Dead Sea was the original scroll of Daniel. But it just doesn't fit with any of their other methodology and it's, it's just bad form. shows how they can't be consistent. The second issue they always... The liberals bring up is the language of the book. And they base this on the fact that there are certain Persian words that are used in the book and so what they basically argue is if Persian words are present in a book that was written before the Persian period, then, uh, then that would indicate a Persian influence so it should have been much later. But Daniel lived at least ten years, at least five years into the Persian period. When he's cast into the lion's den by, by Darius, that's during the Persian period. So Daniel probably wrote this at the later part of his life and it just stands to reason that he would use a few Persian words. Uh, not only that, but the Persian words that are used are, are technical words for official administrators in the kingdom. So he's using the technical verbiage that he would use. He was the second in command. He was the, the prime minister of the land during those last ten years under the Persian period. So it just stands to reason that he would be familiar with this vocabulary. Another argument that's brought out is that, that there are Greek words used in the original manuscript. There are Greek words, and since Greece doesn't become a major player for another 200 years, obviously this had to be written after, the, after that period. Well, the problem with that is, and this is the kind of specious arguments liberals usually come up with, is that they're really only talking about three Greek words. They're only talking about three Greek words and their names for the mu- three of the musical instruments used in Daniel 2 when the Nebuchadnezzar wants everybody to bow down to his image and so he gets a little orchestra together and they all play. Well, three of the instruments have, have Greek names. 
Now, we have evidence from archaeology that in four, from 450 B.C., four, now we're talking about 550, roughly 550 to 530 B.C., so we have evidence from a little later on, 450 B.C., from Egyptian documents of the use of Greek words for money and for some other things. Now, we also know that that according to uh, our archaeological discoveries in Babylon, that Nebuchadnezzar used Greek architecture to build his palace. He had ionic columns. Now, this is, still, this is during the Golden Age, roughly, this is still 100 years before the Golden Age of Athens, which doesn't occur till about 450 B.C. So this is 100 years before that, but Nebuchadnezzar is using ionic columns and various other features of Greek architecture in building his palace. So obviously there was trade between Greece and Babylon, and there was trade of ideas. So this shows that, that it would not be odd or strange for musical instruments from Greece to find their way into, into Babylon. Now, they also argue that there's a lot of historical blunders in the text. And open your Bible with me to Genesis 46.2. Genesis 46.2. Uh, excuse me, Jeremiah 46.2. Jeremiah 46, verse 2. Hold your place there. Flip over a couple of books. Lamentations and Ezekiel to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. Okay, Jeremiah 46.2 says, To Egypt concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the Euphrates River at Carchemish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Now remember, Nebuchadnezzar defeated Necho, Pharaoh Necho at Carchemish, and then he went down and he, and he uh, invaded Judah. So this happened according to Jeremiah 46.2 in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Now turn back over to Daniel 1. Daniel 1, verse 1. And we read, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Jeremiah says it was in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Daniel says it was in the third year of Jehoiakim. Oh, well, maybe New Year's came in between. No, that's not the answer. There appears to be a real conflict here. And so what happens is the liberal comes along and says, well, see, you know, it's a pious forgery and the forger couldn't even get the date right. But you would think that if somebody was going to really be working to, to create a decent forgery that they would at least be able to get the date right on something, on something that obvious. Now, what happens is, and why, how, how this is explained, and which not only is a solid ex, uh, explanation, but it also substantiates the, the uh, historicity of the text, is that... In, um, in the calendar, for us, let's put January right up here. This is when we mark our new year. But in the ancient world, they marked the calendar at the new year with the coming of the fall rains, which is roughly equivalent to our October, and that was the month Tishri. Now, what would happen is, if somebody came to the throne, if somebody came to the throne in Babylon... 
and let's say in, in, in March of 509, then 509, 508, 507, and 506 would be considered his first four years. This His first year, no matter whether it was a month, six months, or twelve months, is called his accession year, and that's the year he comes to the throne, and that's his first year of reigning. And that is how things were handled, or excuse me, that's how things are handled in... Um, In, in Judah. Judah used accession year dating. But in Babylon, they did not use accession year dating. So, this period from March to October is not considered the first year. The first year doesn't begin until October of 508. So, in Babylon, 508 is the first year, 507, and then 506 is the third year. Or, or excuse me, uh, sorry, I've got my... Years wrong here. We start off with should start off with 608 and then go down to 605. Just transposing my numbers a little bit. Uh, go down to 605. But the point is that if you're writing in Judah in the second century BC in roughly 165 BC, you're not going to know anything about how the Babylonians counted time. So you're going to use a Judean basis of measurement, and you're going to say that this occurred in the fourth year. But if you're living in Babylon and you've been in Babylon for 60 or 70 years as Daniel was and you have you speak the language and you're the prime minister of the land and you've totally uh, uh, gotten into most of the culture, not the religious aspects, but everything else, you're going to be telling time according to the Babylonian method and so you're going to say it's the third year. So what happens is not, not the, the explanation is that this is not really a conflict or a conflict between the two, but what we have here is that, that uh, a real explanation that indicates that the writer of Daniel was indeed in Babylon and understood all of their systems. Now, another conflict that's brought up sometimes is that in Daniel 5, we learn that had the scene of the great banquet and the great party, and Herodotus tells us all about this fantastic uh, party that they're having when when Cyrus is outside the gates and he takes his army and he dams up the Euphrates River and diverts its flow so that his army can invade the city underneath the, uh, the gates. And they weren't expecting it. And that's when, when Daniel is called in because they've had the handwriting on the wall and they're having this tremendous orgy up there. And when that is taking place, and that's under the, the last king, Belshazzar. And all of the classical historians, uh, Herodotus, Thucydides, all the ancients, never mentioned Belshazzar. Well, how do we know that he existed historically? And for years, the liberals said, well, this is just somebody who's been made up. Nobody knows who this Belshazzar is. He's not listed anywhere. None of the ancients recognized him. And it wasn't until excavations at Babylon in the early part of the 20th century revealed that, that um, Belshazzar was the son of, uh, of uh, Nabonidus. And everybody said that Nabonidus, all these other historians mentioned Nabonidus as the last king. But what they discovered through archaeology was that Nabonidus had a co-regency with his son Belshazzar, and Belshazzar is left to rule while Nabonidus decides to take early retirement, and he built a, a villa on the uh, northern coast of, uh, of Egypt on the Mediterranean and had retired to his summer palace there and no longer 
functioned as the king and Balthazar was indeed the king. But, of course, we didn't discover that and have that substantiate, substantiation until well into the 20th century. So the liberals just assumed that uh, they were right and the Bible was wrong. This is consistently what happens when you have any attacks on the historical veracity of the Bible that eventually archaeology substantiates the Bible, just that we may not know enough right now. And then another thing that they usually attack is is the idea of the, the fourth king. In Daniel, the fourth king is, is uh, Rome. And that would truly be predictive prophecy. Even if it's written in 165 B.C., that would be a prediction. And so what the liberals do is they come along and they say that the second kingdom in the, um, in the, the huge figure that Nebuchadnezzar sees in his dream in Daniel chapter 2, this would be the, the uh, arms and chest of um, the arms of silver, which represent two different kingdoms. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a dream and the bear is the, is the second kingdom. And what the liberals do is they come along and say the second kingdom is the Medes, the third kingdom is the Persians, instead of, as conservatives see, the second kingdom is the media Persian kingdom. But what we see is everywhere in the book, especially later when Daniel runs afoul of Darius, Darius says, well, it's the law of the Medes and the Persians that can't be broken. Darius defeated the Medes in 540 before he defeated the Persians. First, he defeats the Medes and they merge as one empire and it becomes the Media Persian Empire and it is the Media Persian Empire that defeats the Babylonians, not the Medes that defeat the Babylonians. So the liberals have to play a little fast and loose with history in order to substantiate uh, their contention that there's no real prophecy here. So what we see in Daniel is that there is real prophecy and we don't have any more time this morning. So next time we'll come back and look at the most dramatic prophecy in the Old Testament, which is in Daniel chapter 9, which specifies down to the very week when the Messiah will be crucified. So we'll come back and look at that next time, that along with Ezekiel, and then we'll be prepared We'll be within a week of wrapping things up, looking at the post-exilic history of Israel with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we thank You so much that Your Word is, is historically valid, that, that there is uh, substantive evidence to show that, that there is predictive prophecy and all of this just... It's not our proof, but it just gives, gives a, a substantiation to our faith that You are the God who rules the heavens and the earth you're the God in control of history. And just as you control all things past, present, and future, you can predict all things. And this gives us great comfort knowing that you are in control, that even when the circumstances overwhelm us and adversity seems as if it is too much, that you are still in control and that you still provide the only solution. Father, we thank you for the greatest solution that we have, which is Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. Father, we pray that you would if there's anyone here this morning uncertain of their salvation, unsure of their eternal life, that right now they would make the, take the opportunity to make that certain in their life. All they have to do is accept Christ as Savior. The Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You need to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins as your substitute and that by His death you have eternal life. Father, we pray that You would help us to remember the things we study, to be challenged by them, and to remember that Your Word is true and it's You can solve any problem in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.